The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for this evening. I am just so excited to be here. I have really enjoyed uh, these Wednesday nights together. Um, really, it's a time of worship for me personally, and I hope for all of these uh, brothers and sisters in Christ as we celebrate who you are. And I'm thinking if we now, tonight, uh, are just looking through a glass darkly, what will it be like to see you face to face? If just by looking at these scriptures tonight and these handouts, these homely things stapled in the upper left-hand corner, and, and as we, we just go through certain words, but our hearts start to thrill to the greatness of God, to who you are, to your righteousness, your justice, your wrath, your, um, your omnipotence. These, these thoughts just flow through our minds and give us such an excitement, Lord. What will it be to be in your very presence? And uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, please give us uh, more of that deposit, that down payment guaranteeing our full inheritance through the Holy Spirit that we'd have a sense of your presence tonight. I pray that you'd assist me in my weakness. I pray that you'd assist all of us in our natural reluctance to hear the Word of God and to take it to heart. I pray that instead you give us great faith tonight through the Word and that we would be strengthened. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I really have no idea how far Flynn got with you guys last week. Um, so I'm prepared to begin in a number of places. Uh, how far did he get? <laughs> Is anyone here last week? <laughs> Through You got done with wrath. Did you get all right, beyond that? Did you get into will? Okay, so let's start. Let's go beyond. Yeah, we, you talked about wrath. You finished all of that last time? All right, good. Well, let's just skip on ahead and let's talk about the will of God. Um, so I'm on page three of your outline tonight. Um, I didn't know whether you'd done wrath or not, so we'll just start with the will of God. Now, it's interesting to begin here as we consider um, the idea of the will of God. So often in theology, you hear so much of human will. You hear about free will, uh, about people making decisions and all that. I do believe we have a will. I do believe we make valid decisions. I believe all of that is because we are created in the image of God. And so therefore, if we have a will, how much more does God have a will? And if you think you're strong-willed, you're nothing compared to God. Let me tell you right now, I've talked to my kids before. My kids sometimes are strong-willed. I can be strong-willed. But none of us compares to God when it comes to the issue of being strong-willed. Uh, God has a will. God makes decisions. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, first tonight. We look at the will of God. We talk about the definition from Wayne Grudem. God's will is that attribute of God whereby he approves and determines to bring about every action necessary for the existence and activity of himself and all creation. So God approves of something and then determines to bring it about. That's really what it is. So uh, from Jonathan Edwards' uh, discussion on the nature of the will, the will tends to be in the human being a servant of the heart. It's a servant of the nature. As we've already discussed in my sermons on love, on love for God and love for uh, others, uh, we talked about how the human uh, heart has the ability to assess something and then be attracted to it or repel repulsed from it. We talked about that. I think that that's very much the way it is with the heart of God as well. Only God's uh, assessing ability is perfect. He lacks no information. He knows something as it really is. 
and he studies things as they really, really are. He's not lacking any information. He's able to study everything. And then he, in his own heart, is attracted to or repelled from things in that regard. And so he chooses something and rejects other things. That's really what we're, we're at. And in choosing that, he then determines to bring them about. That's really what we're thinking about here. And, you know, it's a very powerful thing. Think about, for example, I, um, you know, uh, think about the example of, of how he cites um, uh, the practice of the Israelites, the Jews, in sacrificing their children to Molech, burning their children in the fire to a false god. And God says through the prophet, something I did not command, neither did it enter into my mind. Now, people have struggled with that somewhat. Does that limit God's omniscience? He never even thought of it, that they would ever even do that. No, that's not really what it is. Actually, it says in the Hebrew, something that I did not command, neither did it enter into my heart. And certainly what's going on there is that God has thoroughly studied the possibility of Israelites burning their children to Molech and has rejected it, you see. He hates it. It didn't enter his heart. He didn't approve of it, you see. He didn't choose it. And I think that's really very insightful into the heart of God. God has studied everything. And the things he has willed has entered into his heart and he has approved them and he's willed them, he's chosen them. That's really what we're getting at here with the will of God. All right, so God's will in general, God's will is represented as the final cause of all things. Everything is derived from it, according to Louis Burkhoff. For example, creation and the preservation of the universe, Psalm 135 and verse 6, the Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth and the seas and all their depths. Jeremiah 18.6, So house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. In other words, there, Israel, human beings, are uh, like, like uh, clay in the hands of a potter. And he can shape uh, that clay however he chooses. You see what I'm saying? And, and so you remember how God had told Jeremiah, the prophet, to go down to the house of the potter and just watch. And the potter would fashion a, a vessel. And uh, if he didn't like how it was turning out, he would take it off the wheel and reshape it and, and you know, throw it again and, and start over. And he would do that. And he watched this for a while. And then the word of the Lord came to the prophet and said, don't I have the right to do with Israel the way the potter's doing with the clay? Aren't you clay in my hands? And so basically that's what uh, God is doing. He shapes and molds history. He shapes and molds people. He shapes and molds things according to his own will, according to what he thinks is best. That's really what he's saying to Jeremiah there. Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. All right, so things exist by the will of God. That's what we say. That's why we're here. We should say that. We exist by the will of God. We exist uh, because God has willed uh, for us to exist. Um, trying to see if there's... Yeah, all right, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, I don't want to uh, steal thunder. I was thinking about James chapter 4. Uh, instead, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And so we, we could actually say from the James passage, we'll get to it later in, in a few minutes, but uh, if, if I exist tomorrow, it will be because God wills that I exist tomorrow. If God doesn't will that I exist tomorrow, I won't live, I mean. 
And so in this way, uh, we uh, know that God's will is determinative for everything. All right. Also for government in Proverbs 21, one, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Now, again, the word please would imply wherever he chooses, whatever God chooses. That's how he directs the heart of the king. Again, Daniel 2, 20 and 21. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. In Daniel 4, 32, the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Again, it's an NIV translation, but he gives kingdoms to whoever he chooses or wills to give them. Okay. And then Daniel 4.35, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases or as he wills with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Okay, so basically here's the idea. We have this language of whatever God pleases. So I think that's a prior step to will. God is pleased with something and therefore chooses it. You see, that's how it works. In his heart, he understands it. In his heart, he studies it. His heart is attracted to it and then he wills it. That's kind of how it works. All right. Also in the issues of election and reprobation. This is Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, just let me set it in context. Romans 9 through 11 is answering the deep question. uh, What about the Jews? You know? Why are the Jews, uh, you know, rejecting the gospel? And Jesus was Jewish. The prophets all point toward Jesus being the Messiah. You know, uh, why is it that the Jews are rejecting Christ? He's really seeking to answer that question. And it's especially on the heels of just amazing, powerful passage, an amazing, powerful passage on the sovereignty of God in salvation in, in, uh, in Romans chapter 8. How, you know... Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? This ringing statement of the sovereignty of God and that that nothing can separate us from God. Well, then Paul, in his typical style in Romans, he's always bringing up arguments against his own doctrine and then answering those arguments. He does this again and again. And so the big argument against this ringing endorsement of the sovereignty of God and, and all of this is what about the Jews? And so he actually takes three chapters to answer the question. It's not a simple thing. And so in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he's seeking to answer the question. And he gives a multifaceted answer. But one of the very first things he begins with here is just the sovereignty of God and salvation. The sovereignty of God and salvation. That's his answer. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. You know, you can have physical descendants, but then you can have the children of the promise. And that's how he answers there in Romans 9. And he gets to this one point. Um, in, in Romans 9, 15 through 21. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So what does that mean? What does that verse mean? He's talking about the issue of mercy, of salvation. What is he saying there? He doesn't have to give us a reason. Doesn't have to give a, a reason. The, the people that he has mercy on, those are the ones he has mercy on. And the people he has compassion on, those are the ones he has compassion on. In other words, I can do anything I want in this issue of mercy and compassion. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion. Now, he's sounding very king-like here, isn't he? Well, that's because he is a king. You know, he, he has the right to say these kinds of things. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. What's the it in that sentence? It does not, therefore, depend. Salvation ultimately doesn't depend on human effort. It really doesn't. It, in Romans 9, the, 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 uh, Paul is making the point it depends on God 
on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, Pharaoh wouldn't even have his his uh, place on the throne if it weren't for the will of God. And this is what we just covered a moment ago. No one becomes a king on earth apart from the will of God. No one. Or president. No one does. Or queen or emperor, empress, anything. I mean, all of these things happen by the will of God. That's what he's saying. You wouldn't even have have your throne if I hadn't raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. Uh, Just in, in, in terms of our study tonight, God has mercy on whom he wills to have mercy. That's the point we're getting at. As God wills, those are the ones that that God has mercy on. And God hardens whom he wills to harden. Now, one of you will say to me, why does God still blame us for who resists his will? In other words, the implication there is that God's will is irresistible. Is that a true statement? Is God's will in these things irresistible? Yes, it is. It seems that's the clear implication. But the question goes beyond that. We are therefore what? Because God's will is irresistible, we are blameless. What does that mean, Christian, that we're blameless? We had nothing to do with it. We had nothing to do with it. Yeah. So God really can't send anyone to hell, right? God, God has no right to send anyone to hell because nobody can resist his will. Everybody's just the way they are by the will of God, Right. So, um, and, and it's again beautiful. Isn't it beautiful how the Apostle Paul does in fact bring up arguments that people really do make against the doctrine and then answers them? Although this answer may not be too satisfying to you. I remember this moment in Romans 9. But who are you, old man, to talk back to God? It's like, uh, you know, we are majorly put in our place here uh, and that we don't have the right to question God's will. Shall the potter say to the clay, why did you make me like this? You know, shall, shall what is formed Say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Now listen, we could go on for hours about Romans 9. I don't want to do that. What I want to do here is just say, do you not see the will of God all the way through this? Salvation just has to do with God's will. It has to do with what he chooses, not what we choose. And I, I actually really believe that when it just comes down to it, there's just one expression that, that keeps coming out to me again and again. Uh, we, we love because he first loved us. I think then theologically we can extend that concept to other things. We will because he first willed in reference to us. Do you see how it works? In other words, we choose Christ because he first chose us. All of our actions are contingent on his prior action. It must be that way or else we become God in his place. That's really what it is. So ultimately God chooses and then our choices come in reference to his. That's really what it's teaching here. Is this an easy doctrine to understand? No, it isn't. Um, All I'm saying is the Bible is very, very clear that God has a will in matters. What this is teaching is God seems to have a will in every matter, (laughs) not just in some matters. He actually has a will in everything. And so you're really looking at the will of God everywhere you look, all right, in one way or another. And we'll talk more about that. Ephesians 1.11, In him we are also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything conformity with the purpose of his will. See that? So again, God works out everything based on what he has chosen, what he wills. So God really is a chooser. He really is. He chooses this and not that. You know? He, he chooses the one thing and then rejects everything else. 
That's really what we look at. We already saw this earlier in our study in the attributes of God concerning David. How David was the Lord's anointed. Remember? He was the eighth son of Jesse. And you remember how Samuel looked at the, at the, uh, the uh, firstborn. Forget his name, Eliab maybe or something like that. Firstborn. And he's a you know, good-looking, strapping young man and all this. And he said, surely here stands the Lord's anointed. That's what Samuel thought. And remember what the Lord said. He said, do not consider his height for I have rejected him. Now, that's actually a very strong statement if you think about it. It wasn't just that God chose David. It's that he rejected everyone else. Do you see what I'm saying? He rejected all the other, he rejected all of the other sons of Jesse and every other Israelite to boot. He rejected them all and chose David to be the anointed. Do you see, see what it's teaching there? And so, you know, to me, that's an awesome thought. It's, it, it really has to do like with the scroll in the right hand of the one who sat on the throne in Revelation 4 and no one was found worthy in heaven or earth or under the earth. Basically, God's saying concerning the whole universe, he has rejected the whole universe for the right of taking the scroll from the right hand, from his right hand. Only one can take it, and that's Jesus. Everybody else is rejected. Okay? And, and why is that? Because it would not be seemly for Daniel to get up at that moment and go take it. It just wouldn't be right. It's like the universe would come undone at that point. No one can do that. Not the archangel Michael. No one else. Satan can't come in and take it. No, no man, woman, or child can do it. Only Jesus. He has rejected everyone but Jesus from, do, from doing this. And so I, I tell you, it's just a hard concept, but we have to get into it, that, that basically God's will extends to everything in the universe. All around us. All right, sufferings of Christ. Do we see the will of God there? Yes. Uh, Luke twenty-two forty-two. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, said Jesus. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Okay? Did God have a will concerning this cup that Jesus was going to drink? Did he have a will? What was God's will concerning that cup? The cup was the judgment of God, the wrath of God. What was God's will concerning that cup? That Jesus drink it. He wanted, how do you know that? Because that's what he did. <laughs> and there are many other verses besides. A few moments later, when Peter tries to rescue Jesus from the cross, remember? He said, how then would the scripture be fulfilled? It'd say it must happen in this way. So he clearly had a will. Now, obviously, Luke 22:42 is problematic for our study here because it seems to pit Jesus' will against the Father's. Should we read it that way, that Jesus had a different will from the Father? Yeah, I think we should take it as he is our pattern. He is our example. He's the second Adam here in the garden. He's making a choice here as Adam did. And as a human being, he is speaking and saying to, I think this is the best way to understand it. If it could be that my will would be different than yours, let it be your will done and not mine. That's really what he's saying. If there is any discrepancy between your will and mine, let it be your will done, not mine. And therefore, he represents all of humanity in that. It is the picture of obedience. And it's something we really need to learn to say too. If in this matter, Lord, my will is different than yours, may it be your will done and not mine. You ought to learn to say that in everything you do. If in some way our wills are different, please let it be your will and not mine. That's, I think, what Jesus is saying there. We should not imagine there's a division in the Trinity here. You know, Jesus knew it was for this very reason he came to this hour. It was for this very purpose he came. It was to die. But here, I think it's really just a measurement of just the immense immensity of what Jesus was going to do. I mean, if you really think about it, 
drinking the cup of the wrath of all of God's chosen people from every generation, from every tribe and language and people and nation, in one cup, metaphorically speaking, to suffer their wrath all at once, it's incalculable. Uh, it's just incredible. I believe this is the single greatest act of human courage ever, uh, to, to take this cup and say, not my will, but yours be done. Tremendous courage. Powerful. It's very, very powerful. You know, it's it, there's really just infinite depths to what's happened in Gethsemane. Uh, I, I don't want to go into it right now, but I really think that the Lord, that God the Father, brought Jesus to a point of decision. And Jesus decided the cross here. That's He, he exerted His will in concert with the Father's will. I think that's really what's going on. And that's why it says, just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through, through the obedience of the one man, the many were made righteous. You know, this is the obedience right here. He took the cross. All right, keep going. Uh, Acts 2, uh, 23. Uh, this man was handed, speaking of Jesus as Peter in his Pentecost sermon, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Again, here is the will of God. <laughs> Peter seems to know it very, very plainly. Jesus was handed over to his enemies by God's will. It was God's will to do it. It was his set purpose to do it. That's all. It's not an accident. It was the will of God that Jesus should, do, should uh, be handed over to his enemies. says it again in Acts 4, 27 and 28. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God decided, God chose to hand Jesus over. Chose beforehand. How beforehand? The Bible teaches before the foundation of the world. He is the lamb slain from the creation of the world. So Jesus, and this is really an awesome thought if you think about it. You know how Jesus said, I have a baptism to undergo and how straightened I am until I undergo it. Literally, it's like I'm in a straight jacket until I finally go through it. What is he referring to? What is his baptism that he's going to undergo? What is he referring to? The cross, it's the cross, right? And he says, I am standing under the shadow of the cross even at this very moment and I'm under that until I finally go and do it. How long had he been under that cross? From before that. From the creation of the world, he was under the shadow of the cross. When Nathan the prophet said to David, you will not die, the Lord has taken away your sin. How does he make that statement? Because Jesus uh, was going to take it for him. Jesus was very well aware. When, when the angel of the Lord stopped Abraham from killing his own son on Mount Moriah, when Abraham had said the Lord will provide, on the mountain of the Lord it was provided. What was provided? Well, it was a ram, but the ram was just a picture, right? What was really provided on Mount Moriah? Jesus was. And who stopped him? It was the angel of the Lord that stopped him. And the angel of the Lord spoke, Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld... The angel of the Lord speaks like no average angel there. You know what I'm saying? The angel of the Lord speaks like God. Now I know that you uh, fear the Lord because you've not withheld from me, the angel of the Lord said, from me, your son, your only son. Who is that? That's Jesus. And in effect, isn't it right for Jesus to be the one to stop him and say, I'll take it. 
Let me do it. I'll be his substitute. So Jesus actually had been under the cross from the time God said, let there be light. I mean, from, from that very moment. It's an eternal thing. So imagine the excitement when he's finally risen from the dead. The cross is done. The cup is drunk. All of it's finished. How beautiful is it to finally say it is finished? What an incredible statement. All I'm saying is that this was no accident, dear friends. This was the will of God. And it says it straight out in Isaiah 53.10. It says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. There it is. It was God's will. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And I love this. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You know, there's two different ways you could look at this, just in my own metaphor, okay? One is that Jesus is like a skillful gardener and God puts the dirt and the seed and all that in his hand and look what flourishes up out of the will of the Lord in Jesus' hand. The will of the Lord prospers through Jesus. What fruit came from the cross? Well, your salvation and mine and that of a multitude greater than anyone could count from all over the world, right? Or another way to look at it, since we have some musicians in the, in the, in the room, there's a beautiful piece of sheet music that, Jesus, that God the Father handed to Jesus, and look how he played it. Look how beautiful it was, how perfectly he played those notes. The will of the Lord was, was laid out before the foundation of the world, but look how beautifully he did it. And that's, uh, you know, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So perfect. All right. Uh, regeneration has to do with the will of God. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. He chose to give you the new birth. If you're born again, it's because God chose that you would be born again. That's what uh, James 1.18 is teaching. He chose to do this for you. All right. Or sanctification. Uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his uh, good purpose. Now, where is the word will there in reference to God? Do you see God's will there? Do you see God's will? Purpose. Yeah, the word purpose, the very, very last word. All right, that's God's will. Do you see your will in there? Well, yeah, it's God who works in you to will according to his will. And so that's really what's going on, that God would make your will conform to his. And in this case, it has to do with your sanctification. It has to do with your holiness, that you would choose what God would choose for you, that you basically would be like Jesus and just say at every moment, not my will, but yours all the time for your own holiness, that you would learn to work out your salvation with fear and trembling that God would do that work in you so that you would choose what he would choose for you. And that's really what it's talking about there. But God does have a will. Does God have a will for every moment of your life? What do you think? Kevin, how does God have a will for every moment of your life? Okay. Okay. What would the alternative be? That God had a will for 80% of your life, okay? And you're free to do what you want with the other 20, all right? <laughs> no, and, and what would we do with that 20%? Probably nothing good, all right? <laughs> so basically, God doesn't want you to waste even a single moment. And so therefore, God actually does have a will for every second you live on earth. And so all we have to do, what we have to do is find out what it is. What is your will for me today, God? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has laid out in advance that we should walk in them. Every moment's covered. 
There's no, no, uh, no dead space in there. So anyway, that's it. God's will is for our sanctification. Suffering of believers. 1 Peter 3.17. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Boy, does, this is a kick in the teeth for your health and wealth people. Health and wealth people would say God would never will our suffering. God only wills our health. He only wills our prosperity. Right? Yeah, but here's this verse. What a troublesome verse. It is better if it is God's will for you to suffer for doing good. You see what I'm saying? And sometimes, is it God's will that we should suffer for doing good? Absolutely. book of Hebrews speaks about people who refuse to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection, it says. It was better for them to stay in jail. I think about John Bunyan. He's a very good example of this. John Bunyan uh, had a very interesting incarceration. He was incarcerated during a time in England when persecution was was bad, but not horrendous. People weren't getting slaughtered. But there were laws, and he was not allowed to preach. It was against the law for him to preach. He was a tinker preacher, a blue-collar preacher. He wasn't approved by by the archbishop, and so therefore it was illegal for him to preach. But he was called to preach. And so they put him in voluntary prison, basically. You can get out anytime. All you need to do is swear before the magistrate that you'll never preach again. Now, in some ways, you might think that's worse. I can get up and walk out today. And he said, the being a, uh, he, had a, he had a wife and a blind daughter. And he said, the being separated from my wife and my blind daughter has been like the pulling of the flesh from my bones day after day. And he could have stopped any time. But he just chose to stay in prison, you know, voluntarily, until they finally changed the laws. And he was able legally to preach. But uh, at any rate, you know, sometimes it is God's will for us to suffer. It's tough. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him. In other words, it's a gift of God's will uh, to suffer for Jesus. All right, man's life and destiny as well. Uh, Acts 18.21, But as he left, this is Paul, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail for, uh, from Ephesus. This fits right into James 4.15. Uh, Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now, the context in James 4, of course, is of those that are arrogant about the future and say, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, I'll live. We'll start there, okay? It won't matter beyond it if I don't live, right? If I'm not alive. But if it's God's will, I'll be alive, And if it's God's will, I'll do this or that. Now, in effect, James is saying that's how you ought to live. Knowing that I won't even be alive tomorrow if it's not God's will. But if I am alive, it's in order that I might do God's will. And so then I will find out whether it's God's will for me to do this or that. That's really what James 4 is saying. God has a will concerning your life and your destiny. Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's will or purpose that prevails. Okay? Calling to roles of service. Ephesians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Ever heard that before? Pretty famous statement. In other words, I wouldn't be an apostle if God hadn't willed it. God willed that I be an apostle. I was actually wanting to destroy the church. That was my purpose. As I got up that morning on the road to Damascus, that was my intention. I was going there to arrest the church. God said, no, I think I'd I'd rather have you be an apostle of the church. All right, let's do it that way. So whose will won there? (laughs) obviously God's did, to Paul's eternal joy and, and benefit and blessing. Okay, many other such statements. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, and 18. This is speaking of gifting, spiritual gifts. Uh, 
All these uh, gifts, the spiritual gifts, are the work of one and the same spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he wills, determines, right? Who's this referring to? Whose will is highlighted in 1 Corinthians 12, 11? More specifically, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the Holy Spirit. All these are the work of one and the same, what? Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? Have you ever thought of the Spirit having a will in a matter? The Spirit has a will. Why not? He's one of the persons of the Trinity. It's a mystery to us how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit work together. I know there is just one will between them. In other words, the Spirit wills what the Son wills and what the Father wills. But the Spirit still has a will. And so he gives gifts as he chooses. But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, everyone just as he wanted them to be. There it's God the Father, right? In Ephesians... It says each of, each of us has a measure of grace according to the uh, measure of Christ. So Jesus there has a will. So spiritual gifts is one of those many things in which the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all said to be active. And so the Father has a will. He arranges the body as he determines. The Son gives measures of grace as he determines. And 1 Corinthians 12, 11, the Spirit gifts each one just as he determines. And their determination just happens to be the same. Perfectly in concert. Isn't that beautiful? And by the way, that's a picture of how we will be in heaven. We will have wills in heaven. We will choose. We'll make choices. We'll just choose completely in conformity to God and to each other, too. We'll never have contradictory wills concerning that. Does that make sense? That's the essence of our unity and our harmony in heaven is that we're not going to will different things about something and thus have to squabble about it. That would not happen in heaven. Uh, even the smallest matters in life. Matthew 10:29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. You know, why would little things matter so much? Why is this an important verse? A a bird doesn't fall dead to the ground except that God willed that it do that. Because it's total control. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, the details matter. I mean, God knows better than anyone that the universe is made up out of atoms and that history is made up of seemingly insignificant small events. God knows that better than any of us. He understands it. It's more complex than we can possibly imagine. And so little things matter huge. That's why Jesus said, if you're faithful in little, be faithful in much. And so little things do make a difference. Which bothers me when I'm cleaning up my carport and sweeping it up and there's a penny amongst all this garbage and I have to reach down and get it out. Because I like just want to sweep it up and throw it in the garbage. You know, and I've been convicted before. There it is. You know, the penny on the ground. I actually have chosen to throw pennies away before. I actually have. I have done it. I have done it. And then I'm convicted, you know, but I've not rummaged back through the dumpster to get him back out. And it's like, next time I promise I will not throw the penny away. He who is faithful and little will be faithful and much. So little things matter and God, there's no part of the universe that, that's apart from God's will. That's basically what the sparrow verse is teaching. Little things are all part of the will of God. It's everything. All right. So there are distinctions then in aspects of God's will. Remember I said a moment ago that everywhere you look, you're seeing God's will. But everywhere we look, we're seeing an awful lot of wickedness. We're seeing God's laws being violated, right? We're seeing people break God's commandments. I thought God's commandments would be a good expression of God's will, right? Wouldn't you think? Um, And so that's where theologians have to start wrestling with different aspects of God's will. 
There are different aspects of God's will. Necessary will and free will. The necessary will, then Herman Bavinck says, is God's will toward himself is called his necessary will. That toward his cre- uh, creature is called his free will. That's complex. Let's keep going. Wayne Grudem. God's necessary will includes everything he must will according to his own nature. God must will himself. In other words, he must constantly will that he continue to exist. That breaks my brain, so we'll just keep going. He must will his own nature, triune with all the attributes we've described, etc. God cannot choose to be other than what he is or he will cease to exist. All right, look, that's just theologians grappling with if infinitude is what it is. I don't say that the language is invalid. I'm just saying it's just deeper than I can follow. God basically wills to continue being the God that we know he is, the God that he's revealed himself to be. He wills to not change. Could God change? Could God lie? You know, physically, yes. Physically, God could say something that isn't true. But he would violate his own nature, and therefore he really can't lie. You see what I'm saying? He wills to not lie. That's really what it is. So he wills or chooses to continue to be the same God he's revealed himself to be. And that just extends to every area. He wills to continue to be God. That's really what he's getting at there. That's his necessary will. Then there's his free will. Free will, according to Grudem, is God's free will includes all things God decided to will but had no necessity to will according to his nature. For example, creation. He didn't have to make anything. He just chose to make creation. Does that make sense? The plan of redemption. He didn't have to save a single sinner. He just chose to save sinners, all right? The unfolding of history along a certain pattern. None of that was necessary. It's just something God was free. He was free in this matter. He could do what he wanted about it. Wayne Grudem uh, said, there was nothing in God's own nature that required him to decide to create the universe or to redeem out of sinful mankind a people for himself. However, God did decide to create and to redeem, and these were totally free choices on his part. He didn't have to do it. And by the way, I was recently speaking uh, at Union University talking about marriage, and we're talking, I was talking about the differences between the picture of marriage in Genesis 1 and the picture of marriage in Genesis 2. It's not a discrepancy, it's just different aspects. Genesis 1 shows the essential unity of humanity, male and female, both created in the image of God. Genesis 2, however, starts to differentiate between the roles. The husband and the wife have different roles. They're, they're complementary, the two chapters are. But one of the key concepts that I was trying to get across, we have to understand, God didn't have to do it the way he did. And once you get that idea across, then there's purpose behind it. There's a reason why Adam was alone for a while. It wasn't an accident. Like, oh, yeah, wasn't there? Oh, there's a woman. That's right. We've got to, we've got to make the woman. I knew we were forgetting something. You know, that is not how it went. God willed that Adam be alone for a while. And clearly from 1 Timothy 2, it had to do with leadership and authority in the church at least, but we would think even before that, leadership and authority within the marriage in the home. And so God, for a reason, had Adam be alone for a while. Secondly, look at how Eve was actually formed. Where did she get her body? Out of his body. Could God have formed Eve another way? For example, could God have formed Eve up out of the dust of the earth? No doubt about it, he could have done that. It wouldn't have been any more difficult than forming Adam out of the dust of the earth. But God has reasons for everything. Now, we don't always know why God has chosen to do something a certain way, but I think at least some indications are given in 1 Corinthians where we're told that man isn't independent of woman nor woman independent of man, but God created a kind of a marvelous and very unique at that moment interdependence because she's the only woman that was ever created out of the body of a man. But from then on, every man was created from the body of a woman, his mother. And so there's just a harmony or unity there in, in, that God established. So God has a reason for everything. 
Um, but all I'm saying is that's just an example. I don't want to get into marriage right now. I'm just saying whatever is, however it was, God willed it. And that's something we ought to keep in mind. There are no accidents in the plan of God. There are no things that God didn't foresee. You know, you could say, well, then what do you do then with the fact that they sacrificed their children to Molech, something that God did not command, nor did it enter into his heart? Well, in some sense, God willed that it happened, all right? And theologians start to get into the so-called permissive will of God. I'm probably getting ahead of myself here. Uh, So let's go will of decree versus will of precept or permission, I think, generally. Will of decree, then, Louis Burkhoff said, the will of decree is that will of God by which he purposes or decrees whatever shall come to pass whether he wills to accomplish it effectively, causatively, or to permit it to occur through unrestrained agency of his rational creatures. In other words, so that's something that God makes certain happens. He decrees and then it happens. Isaiah 14, 26, this is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. God has a will concerning the Assyrian empire there. That's what he's saying. And so um, God makes certain it happens. God's will of decree. Then there's God's will of precept. Louis Burkhoff said, the will of precept is the rule of life which God has laid down for his moral creatures, indicating the duties which he enjoins upon them. So these would be the commands of God. We could in some sense say it is God's will that we not murder each other. You know, how do we know that? Well, he commanded us not to murder each other. It's God's will that we should not commit adultery. How do you know? Just read the law. That's God's will. It's his will of precept. It's, it's what he has commanded concerning us. Okay? And, and you could say, look, I just see such a, an inconsistency here. Right? You could see, say that. Just understand the inconsistencies in our minds, not in God's. Didn't God will the murder of Jesus? Didn't we already cover that? Was Jesus murdered? Was he? What, what word would you use? Did he commit a crime? Did he commit any sin? Well, then he was murdered, right? I mean, the government does have the right to take life if he has killed somebody or done something. He didn't do anything. And so, therefore, he was murdered. Did God will that murder? He did. All right? Uh, I don't know. I can't figure that out. I don't know how to work all that out. All I know is it's true. He has commanded us not to murder, and he has clearly willed the murder of Jesus. All right? So, it just has to do with God has made his will clear. I will say this, on the laws of God, that's also where we're heading. We're going to a place where that's how we'll live with one another. So it tends to be also God's will of decree ultimately. He's ultimately, by saving us in Jesus, working it out that we will be perfectly law-abiding. And at that point, you can just throw away the law. I don't need it anymore. Don't need it. Because we will just be what we ought to be all the time. And just like there's no law in the Trinity, I don't think there's no, not going to be law in heaven. We'll be completely free from under the law. The law is for lawbreakers, we're told in First Timothy. We don't need it in heaven. We will just love perfectly. We'll love God and love our neighbor. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, we have these laws. All right. So Psalm 119, verse 4, You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. So God really does mean it. <laughs> He, it's not just, oh, you know, if you, if you, if you feel like it. This is, he really intends that this be, uh, that we obey. Uh, the will of decree cannot be successfully opposed or resisted, but the will of precept is frequently disobeyed or resisted. All right, so when God decrees something, guess what? It happens. That's what it is that he is God. When God commands something, it doesn't always happen. As a matter of fact, it seems frequently doesn't happen. We frequently violate his wills. All right, then there's the secret will and the revealed will of God, same as decree and precept. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things uh, belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children 
forever that we may follow all the will, words of this law. So God has a secret will. This is the will of God's decree, which is largely hidden in God. So God has decreed an awful lot of things he hasn't told us about. All right? He just holds that to himself. He's a great secret keeper, you know? Let's take tomorrow, for example. What's going to happen tomorrow? We're already told we don't know what's even going to happen tomorrow. So there God's keeping his secrets. He knows exactly what's going to happen and he knows what he's decreed, but he just hasn't told us. And why hasn't he told us? Because we don't need to know. There's some things we do need to know about the future, like there'll be a judgment day. We need to know that. And so he's told us. Uh, we know that Jesus is coming back. We know that. There's going to be a new heaven and new earth. We know that. But there are a lot of things about the future we just don't know. But don't misunderstand. Uh, let's realize everything has been decreed that needs to be decreed concerning the future. Okay? So these are just verses about God's decrees, uh, those things that uh, are hidden in God. Uh, it's interesting, um, these who knows passages. Uh, I, I find this, this interesting. Um, Esther uh, 4.14, If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. All right, so maybe that's why it happened. Or this one, Joel uh, 2, 13 and 14. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. So what does that mean, who knows? Let me give you one more. Turn the page, page 7. This is the king of Nineveh who decrees that a fast be kept and that people turn away from their wicked ways. Remember the king? And so he actually decrees that the animals be dressed in sackcloth. I always find that interesting. I mean, if we're going to do the sackcloth thing, let's go the whole nine yards. So they go actually go dress the animals in sackcloth. It's like all-time greatest repentance ever. You know, the very thing Jonah didn't want any part of, right? It was like, I knew they were going to repent. I knew it. But uh, look what the king says. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. What does this mean? Who knows? Yeah, God, God knows. God knows. But th this is m many times in the Bible. What is this language of who knows? Maybe. Maybe God will be kind. Maybe God will be compassionate. It implies he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. Could God, even after the repentance, still destroy Nineveh? Could he do that and be just? Well, what did, what did Jonah say? Forty more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. <laughs> That's the message. Not very hopeful, <laughs> you know. And so there's no promise. God's free in the matter. He can kill or he can bring to life. And so who knows? Who knows? What's really tough is when God says it. And there are some verses in which God says it. Who knows? I may do this or that. Again, that's human language. In other words, in effect, I haven't told you yet what I'm going to do. And so I retain my freedom concerning this. And so who knows? That's what he's saying. Then there's the revealed will. This is the will of precept, which is uh, revealed in the law and in the gospel. The revealed will of God is found only in the scriptures and in a complex way in the unfolding of history. Because of the scriptures, we're able to determine what pleases the Lord, pray according to his will, etc. We can, Ephesians 5.10, find out what pleases the Lord. Matthew 6.10, we can say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 7:21 Not everyone who says to me Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my father who is in heaven 
Okay? Matthew 12, 50, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And Romans 12, 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So this has to do with the will of God for your life, the will of God for history. He has revealed some of these things in Scripture. We have to find out what pleases the Lord and then do it. Okay? A uh, uh, key test case on, on relationship between God's secret will, his revealed will, and human will is Joseph kidnapped and sold as a slave into Egypt. And later his brothers threw himself at, the fe- at his feet begging for mercy. Genesis 50:20. Joseph said to them, You intended to hit, uh, harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done for the saving of many lives. So basically, you willed it for evil, God willed it for good. So I think this is a very significant issue here. Human will and God's will frequently run at cross purposes, but the thing itself ends up being the same thing. What was the will of Pilate in the death of Jesus? When he washed his hands of Jesus and all that said, you know, I wash my hands of it. What was his will in killing Jesus? Appease the crowd, huh? Pacify his enemies, just get out of it. He felt like he was like an animal trapped and he wanted to get out of the trap. That was his will. Okay, what was the will of the high priest in the Sanhedrin in the death of Jesus? They wanted to get rid of him because they were jealous of him, basically, I think. They hated him and they were jealous of him. You know, uh, what was Jesus' will? To do the will of the Father. What was the Father's will? To save us. You know, there's just, and it's the same thing. But just all kinds of wills going on. What was Judas's will? Well, to make money and then later change his mind about that. You know, I mean, just lots of stuff going on about that. What was Satan's will? Interesting question. Mm-hmm. What was Satan's will in the death of Jesus? Defeat God. I think it was the death of Jesus. <laughs> basically, he hated Jesus. And he's a murderer. That's just what he does. He speaks his native language when he lies and when he murders. And so he just had to kill him. And so he killed him and then destroyed himself. And that's the beauty of it, isn't it? I mean, that's... But, but there it is. Lots of stuff going on. Here's, a, here's a, another very difficult test case, and I've been working on this. I'm preaching through Matthew 23. And at the end of Matthew 23, Jesus says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Behold, your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what did Jesus will concerning that? What is he expressing? I've longed to do what? To save them, them, gather them together, bring them close, hug them, basically. But they didn't will that. They weren't willing for that. How do you put all that together with Romans 9? How do you you fit that together? He wants to draw them together. They don't want it. And so they don't get it. similar. I actually find Matthew 23 harder than that verse because it says that God is not willing for any of us to perish and the us has to do, I think, with the elect. Um, But here he's clearly wanting the recalcitrant, rebellious Jews to, to gather them together. And so here's the thing. There are just different aspects of will, different levels of desire. There's a desire in Jesus, but it's not an effectual desire. It doesn't overcome their hardened hearts. And so they don't get gathered. And you could say, it's just so hard for me to fathom that. 
if, if God gets whoever He wills, whoever He chooses, no one resists His will, Romans 9 and all that, then why doesn't He gather them? And the fact of the matter is, He will. He will someday. Read the end of Romans 11. I told you it was a three-chapter answer. And the three-chapter answer is the final act hasn't happened yet. And He is actually going to take their godlessness away. He's going to take their blindness away. He's going to do that by His sovereign power. He just chose to do that at the end of history. He didn't do it then. And so he said, you were not willing. And by the way, the issue on free will, I'm going to say this in that sermon, the issue on free will has never been unwilling. The issue on free will has always been willing. All right? It's been proven all the time that people are unwilling to come to God. We see that every day. So that verse doesn't help them at all. All it proves is that the Jews were unwilling. The free will people say, ah, yes, but others are willing and they come. That's why. Well, I just explain why they're willing. They're willing because God has taken out that heart of stone and given them a heart of flesh. He's changed their nature so that they are willing to believe in Jesus. Like he did to Saul of Tarsus. Didn't he take out his heart of stone and give him a heart of flesh? Didn't he reveal himself? Didn't he change Paul's nature? Wasn't Paul born again? And so could he have done that to Jerusalem? The city he's crying over? Yes, he could. He can and he will someday. He just didn't do it then. There is a greater will. And if you read the full story in Romans 9 through 11, the greatest will is to turn to the Gentiles. And for there to be this 20 centuries at least of the times of the Gentiles in which the Jews are hardened, hardened, hardened. Some Jews saved, always, every generation, some, but mostly not. And, and it's just his will to do it that way. It's just his will. And it's, by the way, after wrestling with all of these, depth, these deep things that Paul launches forth with, oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. In other words, we would never have come up with this answer. And so basically God hardening the Jewish hearts, bringing in the full number of Gentiles and then taking the hardness away and bringing the Jews in too. Meanwhile, though, in every generation, Jews going to hell, every generation. Not every Jew. Some Jews are believing in Jesus, but many aren't. And in every generation, hardness of heart resulting in condemnation. And it's a, it's a very, very difficult and deep doctrine, but it has to do with the will of God. So I don't have to preach on that now, but it's coming up in a few weeks. So I'm, I still have some time to work it through. But long story short, we see here the will of God. Any questions about these different things? That God has a will, the free will of God, the secret will of God, will of decree, will of command, all of these things. Yes. Um, the, um, the distinction that you made between the um, the will of the, the decreed will mm-hmm. of God is right. not disobeyed. It's the it can't be. It can't be. The no. commands of God are not disobeyed. No, 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 no. The commands are frequently, but the decrees aren't. Okay, so the commands fall under precepts. Yeah, they're precepts. They're, it's, it's principles. He's given us commands there to be fully obeyed. All right, so those are the, the Ten Commandments. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are the precepts. These are the commands of God. The decrees of God are things that God says, let it be, and there is. Let there be light, and there's light. Let there be a universe, and there's a universe. Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus, you know, comes forth. Actually, that's a little more complex. Lazarus, in effect, Lazarus be alive is decree. Lazarus come forth 
is really a command that Lazarus obeys. But what else is he going to do, dear friends? Is he going to stay in the tomb? Come on. And so actually that's an example of how God works and makes us willing to obey his, his uh, commands. All right? Because his alternatives are really, I mean, come on. I mean, if you have a million Lazaruses, all million are coming out of that tomb. All right? So basically that's really how I understand with a changed nature, then the commands of God appear to be delightful and wonderful as akin to coming out of a tomb into the bright sunlight. That's about what it is. Isn't it better better to obey God's law than to sin? And that's about what it is. And so God increasingly makes that clear. But did Lazarus have a choice about being alive? When, when, he, when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, there's a hidden something that's going on that a moment ago wasn't, and now it is. It's Lazarus's life. Did Lazarus have a choice in that? That's the will of decree. You're alive and you have no choice about that. Okay. And by the way, that's part of the whole thing with just existence. We have no choice about existence. That has nothing to do with our wills. You exist because God wills that you exist and you will exist forever because God, apparently based on his word, wills that you exist forever. You will exist forever, either in heaven or hell. It's much to your advantage to exist forever in heaven and not in hell but you will exist forever somewhere. Suicide cannot change that, cannot change existence. God will uphold your existence, whether in the body or out of the body, he will uphold your existence. And so that's the whole thing. We have nothing to do with our existence. That's all the will of God. And that's an example of will of decree. We cannot, cannot choose concerning that at all. That's something God wills. All right, very, very good. Um, lots to understand here, lots of depth. Uh, to me, I think it's a marvelous thing. Bottom line, through all of the complexities and all that, isn't it beautiful to know that this universe, we're surrounded by the will of our loving Father and that God's will extends to details, to sparrows falling to the ground, to atoms and molecules and to kingdoms rise and fall of the world and to us. I think that's a beautiful thing. And the more you meditate on it, I think the more attractive it'll be. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you uh, for what we've studied tonight. Thank you uh, for the idea of the will of God. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would continue to teach us more things, new things. Um, help us to celebrate who you are, to delight in it, and to understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.